Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. UKJ, 25 years of America's Least Wanted. I'm with Dave Fortman in our own little studio area. Um, Dave, first up, let's take it back to your childhood. I would like oh, to cool. know where you grew up right. and uh, um, tell me about your you know, early memories as a kid. Well, I grew up in Louisiana, man, in a place called Covington, Louisiana. And I pretty much started, well, I was in a musical family, so I started playing instruments super early around... Four, I learned how to play uh, drums on paper, basically learning actual uh, musical notes and whatnot, and how to get four four time going. Because my brothers were older than me; there were three three uh, three of us three years apart, and uh, they we all played music. My dad played music, his dad played music, so on and so on. So it's in the blood. In the blood, yep. So I started very early, uh, right into the fifth grade band, and uh, switched from drums to trumpet, and then uh, played trumpet to ninth grade, and or then went to guitar in seventh grade, right into love and rock and roll. That's all I ever did really was just play music all my life. And I was very competitive about it. And I was in the times that I was in band, I fucking went nuts. I can, I'm assuming I can cuss on this thing, you right? You can say whatever you want, Dave. Nicely done. Um, I went after it, man. You know, and then I was also a board kid, you know, a board sports and whatnot from about the fucking eighth or ninth grade. Oh, well, no, actually, God, my grandfather gave me my first skateboard. He found it under a, I should have kept it. It was a steel wheel 
old roller derby thing. But it was so old, it was he found it underneath the staircase of a house they had um, bought in the fucking early whatever. He got it out from under there for me and let me ride it when I was a little kid, you know. So that's probably like a, an original design, Old right? school, yeah, yeah original yeah, yeah. design of it, yeah. And it, so that, I used to ride, I remember riding it, was like... <laughs> the fucking wheels, you know, there was steel. Sparks flying off the curve, yeah. And I'd go down to my neighbor's driveway and come down that fucking thing when I was like four or five years old. I was a little kid. Now I was about eight or nine, maybe, and I was all into it. I mean, I got a you know, picture of me from the 70s, so 1978, doing a handstand on a Logan fiber flex, you know, like that. Or Logan Earth, it wasn't a fiber flex, it was a Logan Earth wooden board. But that picture, it's on my Facebook. It's fucking radical to look at, you know, because all the, what I'm wearing is amazing. Those high cut cutoffs and then the Adidas and then the black socks. Those were good times. And, of course, that led now to when we went and got into snowboarding. I'm still riding like an asshole. Dangerous as hell, but I can't get enough of it. And I used to jump, you know, and I wasted my collarbone, five chunks coming off a of backside air like an idiot. But I still go out 50, and I still go out there and do flat tricks, man. <laughs> it's just not a good idea, man. It's a fucking horrible idea. Never too old to shred. Yeah. So that's all I did when I grew up, you know. And I was not that great in school. I barely got out of high school. Took, I was like a C student my, my entire life. I hated it. I tried to go to college one year. It was a fucking disaster. What a nightmare that was. I, could, I had never had a chance. Because the chick told me, like, in math 101, you know, which was just flying over my head. <laughs> That the only way I was going to pass is if I came every day after school to or after her class and tutored. I'm like, what? The f- what? That's like, the last thing you want to do as a kid, isn't it? Is spend well, more time in it's school. Quarter beer. It was a quarter beer. Beer this big for a quarter, like a hundred yards from my dorm when I was like, fuck, we're getting wasted, dude, and playing guitar all night. And there you have it. And then I went all the way through. And then I hit my first high school band was what really mattered when I first got a, got some dudes that wanted to jam, and I was like. In junior, a junior in high school, 15 or 16 years old. And from there, we got the bug and we started, we became probably the most successful live act out of that area to this day. It's Is that still Louisiana? Not, not New Orleans, but just the town of Covington. Yeah. Yeah. Never been done before. Hadn't been done since. You know, we would pack so many fucking people out in there. So that got to a boil. And if I decided to take off to go to California and uh, with the band, they wanted to come with me. Then that led to furthering. Me, I, then I got away from them because I was like, yeah, I, we, we were terrible. I was tired of it. I was like, fuck this, man. So I jumped into a band called Sugartooth, who in turn started to take Hollywood pretty fast by storm. What kind of style were they? It was like a grunge band, man. And uh, we got the lawyer. No, what was it? We got the manager that was managing Ugly Kid Joe. He was our lawyer. He was like, every he was involved with everybody in the scene. So... I met these guys, ironically, at his house one night at a dinner, and we went out and partied because I was like, these dudes are rad. I'm going to go play. I'll go around and uh, go fuck out with them, you know, and go out and get wasted. So we did. And then I was a friend. I was friends with them for about a year and a half. And I, just, I would hang out with them more than I would my band, you know. But my band was doing really good. We had a giant record deal with Geffen and Capital and a battle and all this shit was going on. And the moment came where it just was a decision because um, – and Witt had forgotten all this stuff. He thought that I like jumped in the band after they sold a million five. Like I'm like him. Like he's like, well, you're up and rode on the coattails like, of no, success, motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. You were to ask me to be in the band way back before it even started taking off. And so they did start to start to hit. And like I still thought that I would ruin my band's record deal if I jumped out. You know. But then I realized, oh my god, the singer we hired can play the guitar as good as me. 
I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> he can take over for me. And uh, that, because I, I, it was, I mean, they had already sold like 30,000 records or something with those guys. And it was starting to come on, you know. It's like, wait, this thing's going to really fucking hit. So I just told the band, fuck it, I'm going to, because they were my, my best friends were like Witt and Klaus. I would go see them on the weekends. I'd leave band practice on Friday and go see them in Isla Vista. And I never hung out with my band, you know. It was like, I never would, we would never do anything really. We'd just see each other practice. And I was thinking, this is a good time to, to go, you know. So, so we, you saw your exit and you fucking. Yeah, it was the right thing to do. Jumped. And Witt was, uh, he was persistent about it. So that helped a lot, you know, the fact that he really wanted me in the band that much. Because he, he kept after me for a while before I said, yeah, you know, I mean, that way into it, way early on, you know. And I would think, like, yeah, I, could, I thought it'd probably be fun as hell, but... So were they a four-piece at that point, or did they have another guitarist? No, Roger Lahr, um did the very first the EP, tour. Right? Yeah, the EP, and he did the tour with them in the little Winnebago or whatever. Uh, and then uh, he, <laughs> he he fucking busted us. We, we, we were like... Do already jumped into pre-pro or something. We were in Isla Vista in the garage practice room they had. And up comes the door. And it's Roger. And I'm on guitar. I'm like, oh my God, dude, fuck. How did that situation he pan out? He had figured it out, you know. He was he didn't say anything. He was cool about it, whatever. He just came and got his stuff out. Like, But it's pretty ballsy to just come on in while you're playing, you know. Just to open the door on us while we're jamming, man. I'm like, whoa. Everybody was like... Wow, dude, what? There's Roger. <laughs> Fuck, man. He was a really nice guy. It was just a weird... He, he didn't... He was his character, I guess. Well, he, well, let's get down to it. He was... Well, he made it here this Sunday. He's a, he's a great musician. Don't get me wrong. I think that the pairing of the types of people and... Uh, well, it's about well, chemistry, isn't it? The is chemistry it? of it, yeah. It, you know, it's different types of people, I believe. Um, but if you sit... You know, you meet Roger and you hang out with him. He's, he's a really nice guy and uh, certainly... Just different types of people, I would say. It'd be a nice general description of that whole thing. So then I then and I go with uh we would go right into doing the marriage least wanted and then all... And that's the first record you made, was it? Yep. Wow. That was me doing pretty the... good start in the old yeah. music business, eh? Fuck yeah. Did great. you do the Aussie tour with, with Motorhead as well prior to that album? So was that your first tour with the band? Was well, that, well, that, no that, that, that tour wasn't prior to the album, it was after. Oh, was it? Yeah. It was after the it was album. After. It was right, the, right. after we had already gotten the album done. I think it was prior to the release, maybe. Right. But Oh, the album was made. Of course, it was prior to the actual. Okay, in terms of what you would see, it was before the album came out. It was a build-up to the album coming out. I think, I, man, I don't know, honestly. It would have to be, because we went from the studio right to Portland, Oregon, I think, and did Ozzy's tour, started it. So the album couldn't have been out. It didn't come out much longer after, but... I never thought about that. Wow. So people had never... Oh, that's right, because Neighbors the first video. We didn't shoot that until we got to Denver, and they had to go edit it and do shit. We had been on that tour a while. Uh, so we are out there playing Neighbor and all those songs, and nobody knew them. Really. And you're above Motorhead as well, right? I remember Witt telling me the story that the promoter or whoever, because that EP had sold so much, they billed you guys this unknown band for all intents and purposes above Motorhead because Whit told me this story about how he walked into Lemmy's dressing room and was oh like, that's right I'm we sorry did. yeah we did go on after I always thought my memory got well but you want to remember <laughs> the things backwards don't you you know my memory is that we opened up for them we didn't no no we, we went on after Motorhead wow it's a trip 
and that's and pretty I iconic forgot, fucking start, I right? It. We didn't uh, we didn't have America's Least Wanted out <laughs> at the time. You know, so we're playing all those songs. The only ones they know, or they don't even know Cats in the Cradle yet. We didn't play it live at that point. Fuck, that's crazy, man, to think about. Is everything about you was just, just like essentially one song? Right? We would have that to end this. Yeah, oh my god, I forgot. That's right. And then we went and made Neighbor in Denver, and then the album came out, and then we were at some point. Okay, we, Neighbor came out, and then people started to know that one. Then we were like in Hawaii with the record company president one time on acid. I'm fucking <laughs> tripping with this dude that's like the vice president of Mercury. Of Mercury, yeah. We're sitting there watching the ocean in Hawaii somewhere. And they had found, they had gotten nothing, but they, he had gotten a call or something about a guy playing Cats in the Cradle somewhere, I think back in Denver or somewhere. I, this could all be wrong because I'm old. But <laughs> what, like a DJ, you mean? Yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. had, or uh, Nashville somewhere, they had elected just to play it because they liked it on the album. And they got so many phone calls that we were now on our way to go make a video for that because um, it was obviously going to be a hit. You know, it was a surprise because we didn't think of it being. So initially, was it just done to sort of pad out the album and complete the track? It was. Why well, yeah. you got some cool teeth? Let me see those teeth. Those are the bad fangs, right? Dude, the vampire you fangs. Bite the shit out of somebody. <laughs> fucking kill somebody. No one's ever noticed that about me before. It's cool, yeah. Observational um, kind of guy, dude. I am, man. Yeah, and then, you know, the original reason we put it, really, Mark Dotson was rad. He was a, such a, he's still such a great guy and a, and a great producer. He had really pushed to make that song real great and to make it happen, you know, and he had so much to do with it. Well, because he could hear it, you know, and we were just like, whatever, you know, didn't even think twice about that being something as big as it was and to carry us into a platinum status like that. I mean, it's fucking rad. God. What was your memory of making the album as kids with no studio experience? Were you all pretty much wet behind the ears and yeah. going in like, whoa, what's happening? I don't, well, we had all been in before for various reasons. Um not under those conditions where it's like it's it's something like well, you've we, got Rob Halford coming in. We're following a, an album that's now you know platinum EP for fuck's sake, the largest EP release ever. He uh, Mark was a really good, great producer, and his influence on us. I mean, he look. I mean, he fucking definitely was a large influence on me for for me to become such a big producer. Now you know. Was that when the cogs started turning? Was that experience well, of working with Mark? Yeah, it was one of them. But now we were also young, and we were also. So I was baked all the time. I mean, we were drinking. I mean, we were partying it up, man. We were raging hard, living at Oakwoods and, and getting nuts, man. You know, though they were living at Oakwoods. I actually still had uh, my apartment in L.A. with my buddy. And then I would go back and forth, sleep over there. But we were fucking tearing it up. We were raging like a motherfucker, just getting crazy. But the experience of him... the You know, the arrangement thing, I remember now. I didn't tell him if I took it that much to heart. But uh, seeing his ability to look at the pocket of the song and like to get everything to where people are playing, you know, which is nowadays a little, I don't go that tight with ever, anybody. Like, I don't sit there and get guitars like perfectly fucking left and right ever. You know, I don't care. A little, little looseness is fine with me. I, and I learned a lot um, because Garth. Is this album too now? Album too. Garth was really influential too because he. He was just sort of the other side of the whole thing where he was more about capturing whatever, you know, he had us, he let us set up like he had done Rage Against the Machine where we got a big living room with this giant mansion and set up a full PA, man. Like it was a big speaker, like giant speaker and we're jamming out my guitars coming out and we're recording drums with all this shit live in the room. And Is so that he, what ended up on the album? Yeah, not the, not the guitars. Not the guitars. No, but to get the drums, we got to put all that shit, like PA up and all this. I mean, the fucking drum set monitored, like a live drum set. 
So that's a really unique for us. I mean, that is the most unique. It has become our Paul's boutique. It really has, man. Like, so I love that album. There's some great songs on <clears> there as well. Obviously, you had I mean, Shannon Larkin in the band at that point as well. It's right? just so like over time, you know, and it just became such a cool thing for people, man. You know, people love Milkman's Son. They like my song on there. Tomorrow, all well. my songs on there. I, was like, I wrote a lot of shit on that album. Uh, they love, you know, it's. Jesus wrote a Harley people like now, you know, and all it's a trip, man. And cussed all those two and cloudy skies. We sang last night and people just love the fuck out of it. But when I go listen to the, to the, just, it's a weird sounding record. It's a, it's a cool, nothing. I've never had anything that sounds like that in my life. It's bizarre. You know, that's all I do. I study that shit now because I'm a producer, but it's a trip, you know, and then Garth was the first one because what I was doing at that point, I had, I'd been doing the demos for that record. So, Essentially, Garth came and pulled me aside and said, "Man, you really ought to produce." It's like he's like, "You're basically producing this record," you know. You know, funny enough. Were you conscious that you were doing that, or was no. it just your excitement was feeding no, out dude, in that no. way? I see. I believe. Trust me. Like I fucking freaked out and I took it as an insult. Like what? Fuck you! I'm an artist. I'm not gonna be a producer. Like that shit. And then Witt said the same thing during Motel California, man. Where we were at my house one time, and I took it as a total insult. I was like. Thinking, oh, this motherfucker doesn't think I'm good enough to be an artist anymore. Like, fuck this shit. Fuck you. I'm a, no, I'm an artist, dude. You know, making this demo, blah, 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 blah. Well, in hindsight, of course, after 30 million records sold as a producer, fucking, they were right, I'm assuming, right? <laughs> it's weird how you can take things to heart. So during the lifespan of Ugly Kid Joe Chapter 1, you weren't considering that as an avenue at all. Mm-mm. Was it when the band then broke up then? Is that when you started looking at that as an option? Seriously? What? It wasn't like being a big producer. It was like just recording motherfuckers in the garage to pay bills was all it was. It was, it was necessity, the mother of invention is what it was. Who was the Fuck. first band you worked with? What was the first record you produced? Uh, well, I did the demos, first demos for Snot. Wow. And then also... Um, what was that like, Lopro. man? What a talent. Well, it wasn't anything at first. It was just Mikey was like our, one of our best friends. So Mikey was like, he teched for me on our tour. He was just alone. He, he was in a band called Chronix. And then he, um, after hanging out with us, had gotten together with Lynn. From, who was Lynn Strait was from a band called Glue, a three-piece or four-piece band. And then uh, they got these other dudes that weren't even in it's not the future version. They got these other guys, Ruben and... Um, Bill, what's his name again? I forgot his, the drummer's name. This guy, they had a dude on keyboards with a flock of seagulls haircut <laughs> in the early version of Snot. Then they came and played out at the, where we made Minister Sobriety at that fucking mansion out in San Ynez, man. They came out there and played the Halloween party with us with that lineup, not the, anybody. In the, so they kept picking apart different members and killing them. So in the end, Shannon ended up literally giving them all of the motherfucking pit bulls. Shannon had a band in, in the West Coast called the motherfucking pitbulls it had sunny um tumor and jamie in the band shannon was a singer so when they needed a drummer then shannon said well no i think it started with yeah it started i think with i forgot how the, the, the thing went i think they yeah it was first tumor came in they got rid of ruben and tumor was able to came out play bass then it was sunny came out play guitar then they needed a drummer i think it went that way i'm not sure which how the order went but eventually the pitbulls are all in snot so now you have Mikey and Lynn, and you have the Pitbulls that changed everything, and that's that's where you have the record deal with Geffen. The original demos I made that got things stirred up 
didn't have those guys on there. You know, they they weren't even around. I don't think. Now they weren't. I mean, it was all of us yelling, "My balls, your chin." You know the album? Yeah, love it. Yeah, we were in my fucking garage yelling that shit out. <laughs> it was classic, man. What's your memories of Lynn? He's a special guy, wasn't he? Lynn? Oh yeah, I loved him. Yeah, yeah. He's a great guy. And you know, we were really close to him and Karen. You know, at the time I was, uh, you know, he came over and gave me a cigar when I had a kid. You know, and all that shit. And he would. Uh, He's, you know, a reckless guy, man. He was a fantastic human, though. He just had problems with heroin and whatnot. And uh, funny enough, it's so strange. Uh, then Karen had come down. We gave her a little taste of the South. I had moved, like, literally, I don't know, probably, I don't know how, when I moved. I moved back to Louisiana just before he died. I wasn't even there that long. So she was all distraught. So she flew down to Louisiana, came over. We took her to my grandma's and like had the old school Southern vibe. It was real laid back. We could sit on the porch, you know, and give her some time and chill out. But that fucking dirtbag, it was funny because one of his fucking friends from school was recording uh, down in Louisiana right after he had died. So we're all sitting, he's sitting in the control room with me. This is a guy that like went to school with him in Montecito. Was a, used to run around and steal like church PAs with him and shit. This guy, Mike uh, Pananitis. I'm sorry, Jesus Christ, if he hears this, he'll kill me. Mark Peninides. <laughs> and he but he said the funniest fucking thing because I gave I loaned I found a fucking Les Paul. Pure maple. Only one I've ever fucking seen. It cost me like thirty five hundred bucks in Dallas when we were touring back in ninety two or three. Well, Mikey needed a guitar, loaned him a guitar. Well, Lynn fucking didn't know it was a guitar. He sold the fucking guitar for heroin, man. Got him a big bag of fucking dope with it. I didn't even know that till way later, man, you know. But then Mark Pananides is sitting in the control room with me playing guitar. And, I, and it was they were having the wake for Lynn. And I'm like, yeah, man, it's, it's a bummer we couldn't be out there. He goes, yeah, dude, everybody can figure out where all their shit went. <laughs> and I was like, so they can figure out what Lynn stole from. They can all talk now. I was like, that is the fucking funniest thing. He's like, yeah, dude. Dude's ripped everybody off, man. Like it's like we ripped off the Montecito Church's PA and to use it the practice room one time or whatever. That was hilarious. But certainly, yeah, I had some good moments with that guy. You know, it was great to see him get a record deal and to to influence the world. You know, it was fantastic. He was quite the boy. Very good dude, man. For sure. How did it when you and Ugly Kid Joe part ways when the whole band sort of disbands? Does it end? Well, Klaus really, you know, he he's the he was he always has been the most level-headed and the, and the wisest out of everybody and the most prudent um, dude ever. So a nice calming influence on the band. Yeah. Right? And you know, what happened was, I mean, we, he basically just called everybody. We were, we were in the middle of like writing some riffs and we were hanging out and we, we just came, he called us to his house to come over. I believe he had already, maybe he told Wit and then he told, we just sat around. It's like, well, no, we don't want to do it anymore. If, if Vike doesn't want to do it for sure. I don't, why would we want to keep going? So it was just pretty amicable. Is that the name for it? Yeah. Or word for it? Yeah, it was easy. It was, it was That was it at the time. Done. And then the whole idea of how this got started was just me telling them, the whole band, like, wait a minute, you know, there's digital iTunes and shit. You don't have to make a record if you don't want to. I said, well, couldn't we literally, I'm a producer, we can make it for free. Weren't you doing the Godsmack album with Shannon? Is that how it sort I of think, started to... 
Yeah, I came. It was after that, I believe. No, I talked to Shannon about it. That's right. In 2010, I started talking about it with Shannon. I'm like, wouldn't that, I mean, Jesus Christ, couldn't we just make an EP just for misclicks? Like, put it like put it up there, and whoever's trying to hit cats in the cradle fucking slips and hits this new thing. Couldn't we? I mean, even if we sold, if a thousand people did that, we still would make a little bit of money. Why not do it? That'd be stupid not to do. That's would be fun, you know. So when I got the idea back to to Witten Klaus about it, then they they made it happen. They they went and got to on that one. Yeah, they went and got started on it because I had to wait a little bit to record. They went and got started in L.A. on it. They really you know took the ball and ran with it, which ended up being a little bit too expensive overall. They should have just waited. And then the, the next time we did it on uh, this newest one, then that it was a lot cheaper. Which came came all did it all with me in, in one sitting, you know. But the concept, and that got wit. Uh, he, you know, with his amazing, he has a killer networking skills, man. You know, and he knows a lot of people. He's a he hustler. Isn't getting, he? Yeah, he is. He started now. He's managing the whole thing, man. You know, it's it's incredible. It's a lot of stuff to deal with. So he started to go out uh, and and get this these things happening, like these tours, like why I'm sitting right here and having this interview. I mean, all that shit it was manifested by him. And here we go. Here we are today. I love that EP. I love the I'm Alright song. It taps right back into yeah, that cynical humor that Ugly Kid yeah. Joe did so well. It's great, right? Super crunchy riffs. Yep. And I think, I mean, what was the experience of all of you back in a room together playing, creating, jamming? Was that a, lot, a magical man, experience? A lot, a lot of history? Of a, lot of... And, uh, a lot of Modellos and a lot of laughing. We laughed so <laughs> fucking hard in that fucking... One more beer time. as well. I love that tune. Yeah. It was, it was so many moments. There were some moments, man, where we were just crying fucking laughing that's with every session you know it's easy to record these guys there's no you know it's a different it's like recording with you, jam like jam with your friends and recording have a good time and making music and you know and i let like i do things backwards i just let you know wit sing on a 58 in front of the speakers and whatever he wants to do and you get better performances that way you know i found over the years instead of having them in the country getting all in there like okay, i'm just gonna yeah. take this first verse you know which I did with a lot of bands. I quit doing all that shit though. After I think the last one was like Godsmack, twenty whatever two thousand nine. I started to realize like it's it, it, it miscommunication in the in like there's just this silence in between. And even though I did it again with Sully when this solo thing a couple of years ago, but I should have just had you know just just want to I just like get them right there in the fucking room with you. You know even if it's whatever even if it's in front of speakers everybody put headphones on and just so you can just talk to the guy like okay let's, you know, it sounds killer let's listen and not have this like because mm-hmm. you feel like a fish in a fucking tank like exposed yeah right? like whoa man I'm like this guy it's not natural like is if it? you're the dude in the box you're like wow okay everybody's looking at me or or I'm sitting here and I can't hear a fucking thing they're talking in there like yeah, that idea is out the fucking window man now fuck that shit I'm not into that. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Let's talk, Dave. You've produced some pretty epic records in your time. Um, was the first big one, Evanescence, the debut album, Fallen, was that the first, first like one, yeah, huge sure. record? Mm-hmm. How did that come about? How did you meet those, those guys? And uh, at that point, were you sort of known yet as a producer? Were you like yeah, a guy well, that people would call upon or? Well, I moved back home to have a child or to raise kids in uh, in Louisiana. So we, our, uh, a friend of mine, Gene Joanne, uh, had a studio, or me and him sort of went in on this idea of uh, of having a studio together and uh, he built it. And so I went down there and we started working out of it and things were terrifying at first. And then we had uh, the NOLA crew show up, you know, a pepper, Keenan found out I was back in town. He was just telling the crew, you know, Billy Ford was the king of the four track, bro, is back, you know, whatever. The king of the four tracks back. I love it. Because I used to record back then on four track recorders. They, they sounded rad. So Jimmy Bauer decided to come in with Clear Light, which is the Clear Light, the mystical, mystical crew of Clear Light, right? Fucking what a record. It's the first record I really did that was an actual uh, release, national release. And, uh, and Philip heard it, you know. Phil came in and he was like, you know, you know, even the drums, man. Like, God damn. He couldn't believe it, man. He was like, he, he was like, so this is not analog. He was, I, said, I said, no. He said, well, it's not even the drums. And I'm like, nope. I said, it's all just ADATs that I was using back then. And I had a trident board. So the, he really was, I mean, essential in a lot of ways. Uh, he helped me a shitload because. How without, far back does your relationship with those guys go? Oh, well, me and Pepper were friends. I mean, we were skateboard punk rock friends, you know, back in like, I don't know, 84 and 5 and So six. you grew up together, essentially. And for me and Pepper, it was a small world because my cousin that got shot in New Orleans when he was young and something was a friend of Pepper's in school. I didn't know that. And, uh, you know, me and him hit it off right away. It was a bunch of, it was like the year, I don't know what, yeah, it was like 85 or 6 or something. It all started to happen. So I, essentially, I knew him more than the rest of the, the whole scene, you know. Uh, and I only met, I mean, the first time I met Philip was actually through Pepper at a bar one time after he was already famous. I Mem- was already Memorable in, night? Yeah, I think I was already in Ugly Kid Joe, for, uh, for instance. Like 92 or maybe it was. Well, that start. well, then when I got, got back home, of course, and Philip started, when he uh, he came in to, to check it out to maybe do Super Joint with me. And he loved it, and so we did that. So then he was able, I mean, once he started, when he threw the word out there and just roped in the whole NOLA scene, you know, and I got all these bands, you know, Crowbar, um, Soul and Green, I Hate God album, you know, I did a bunch of them. And they, those those albums back then were like nine-day runs. you do them in 10 days. They were 
they would get ten grand overall, give me five of it, and they would take and, and have split the money, so everybody could eat and pay their bill, or I could at least eat and pay my bills and keep the house afloat that I had <clears throat> in Louisiana. So that was fucking important. And then one day, as I'm still just doing local clientele, a band called Twelve Stones walked in the door. They were just little kids, uh, and they had some because they had heard another client of mine had gone to their studio. They were over in some other studio in New Orleans. And the, my friend, a client of mine that I played drums on, it was just some little kid that was like 16, this guy, Isaiah Pierce, took, he was like, oh, these drums sound amazing. So he took him over to the studio where those kids were, and they freaked out, like, what? And they packed up and said, fuck it, we're going to see this other guy. Really? We're out. Yeah. So Love he, it. then he, essentially, so they wanted to come over and uh, and get it done. And then what it was, was that uh, it was just a quick thing. And then they, that night, those kids were so fucking gung-ho, they drove to the radio station in Biloxi. We're knocking on the door late at night, and a guy let him in. And he played uh, the way I feel. That like at midnight at night or something. I think that's the story. And then uh, Kenny Vest, this guy was the radio programmer, heard it. He happened to be driving the car, heard the song, but blew him away. So he took it to Wind Up Records, who essentially had Creed and everything. And they sent it back and said, "We'll get it more produced, and let's see what we think about it." So the kids came back in. Well, but they want it more produced. And I said, I told him right then. I said, "Look, they, what they want is." better arrangements and better songs. I said that it's not really the mix they're looking to up, up, you know. They didn't know what they were talking about. And I, I mean, they didn't know what Windup was talking about. And I was like, so we took and we looked at the construction of some of the songs, you know, and, and took me to, you know, cut out some time here and time there, put another killer mix on it, and it worked. So at the time, while this is happening, I had run, uh, Tim Groose used to play him in Sugar Tooth, my old band. He'd run into my old manager, Frank Kid Joe, Dennis Ryder. Well, I gave him my number. Dennis had called me. Um, he had been managing Jay Baumgartner, who had done Papa Roach. You know these people? Yep. All right, so back before 12 Stones, I had done a band called Fall From Eden, and I was doing, you know, Jay just said, well, let's, let's hear what he's doing. You know, he wanted to see what was, what was happening. So I'd sent him a, a demo, one of the most before-their-time bands ever, man. These kids that I did were like 14, 15-year-old kids that were fucking rad. I mean, it was insane. They were like... You know, like AFI before it all even hit hard. And that demo apparently got around NRG Studios and Jay was like, man, well, you know, I'd love to co-produce something with Dave, man. Because I had known him from before because uh, he was assistant engineer on Ugly Kid Joe's EP. Even though I wasn't there, we met him through, the, you know, seeing him every, all the concerts and things and hanging out with him. Well, then our day came. Well, it ends up that 12 Stones was in, interested in using Jay and keeping me on board to be co-producer. So I get to go co-produce 12 Stones record with Jay in LA from Wind Up. Well, Jay was totally down, man. He thought I did a great job. Then Wind Up asked him to do this band called Boyce It's Fire. Yeah, yeah. Connecticut. Jay was busy doing the Seether record. So he said, well, why don't you let Dave do it and then let me oversee it as an executive producer. And so they let me turn me loose on my own band, finally. And uh, that band had a problem. They, they had these eight-minute songs. Wind Up wanted to have them constructed and uh, arranged properly, but nobody could do it. They've been trying to do it. They had other people try. So I got in there and went to work on them, man. And uh, they nicknamed me The Butcher. The band got me a big knife that said The Butcher on it. Dave Scissorhands, yeah. I came in, man. Yeah, I came, came in hard. And they loved it. And then the, the fucking president, of the, the guy that owned, you know, owner of Windup came down and listened to it. And he fucking freaked out. And he goes, ah, oh, so you're The Butcher, huh? <laughs> Alan Meltzer, he's a great guy. Funny motherfucker. So he... Then essentially called me to 
go to New York. It was like, got a phone call. I need to, you need to fly to New York after that record. So uh, there I off I go. Me and my, my ex-wife flew to New York. And they wanted me to be a vice president of A&R suddenly in a in staff producer, like to sign on and do their bands, basically clean house and get all, he wants everything arranged like that now. And of course what, my manager. rapid like turn of events well, to like, go from whoa. zero. I, mean, I couldn't fucking, believe I was sitting in there and they're telling me this shit. I was like, wow. Like the keys to the kingdom almost. Yeah. yeah. And so funny enough, I had to say no because I, I called Dennis and Jay. We got on a, th- a call together. I think that's how it went down. Well, at least we, they said, fuck no, that's insane because you got, you have a chance here. You're going to, you're going to have other opportunities. And I'm like, well, no, because I'm bored this time. I'm like, no way. They just offered me like $150,000 a year. Plus I don't even have to move to New York. It was live work at home or fly around and look for bands, whatever they want to do. So I said no, but in the same meeting, they also had the three kids from Arkansas, uh, Evanescence, which weren't real a full band, but there was three people that had been in development waiting on Don Gilmore in the so this is without Amy at this point. This is just the band. Oh no, no band. Amy, Dave, and Ben. Right. The essential songwriters. Just the three kids. Not no, none of the. There's a really. There was people that played with them, but they considered themselves to be the band. Amy, Ben, and Dave. So, Alan decided that it was me that he wanted to do it, not Don Gilmore anymore, the Lincoln Park producer, obviously. So off we go. Um, he makes the phone call to Amy after I had left. And she freaked out, lost it, like, no fucking way, man. Like, we're, there's no, we, we throwing us to wolves after making us develop for a year in L.A. And then you tell me I'm not good on stage and like, he made her take, like, acting classes or I forgot what the deal was. Something like that. Improv, whatever the hell he did with her. But, so he said, well, I won't, you know, I can't force you to do anything. I'm not going to force you to, to use him, but you, I will tell you, you have to go have at least one dinner with this guy in New Orleans. So he flew Ben and Amy down to meet with me in New Orleans. So we went out to dinner and uh, I told him. Do you have wind that they're not happy with the situation at this point? Do you know that they'd rather go with Don? Or are you just yeah. going, you're aware of that pretty, situation yeah. at play? I don't know if Alan had told me all that yet. I just knew that he he just he called and said, you know, Amy and Ben are going to come down and have dinner and I want you to meet them, you know. And so I, you know, fuck, I wasn't thinking anything about it. I was just like, same as anything, you know, I was going to go try to win the gig. Yeah. And uh, and I did. I sat down and told him, I said, man, you know, the, basically, here's what I would do with, here's the kind of dude I am. So we could work on arrangements, all these things like that. Here's what I do when I produce, blah, blah, blah. I said, also, you know, record companies, I know from watching the wheel and the people that make the phone calls and shit stop spinning for Ugly Kid Joe, the difference is, you know, I said, and right now I got the keys to Alan's heart. If we go and make a record, time is of the essence, and they will work it like a motherfucker because he loves me right now. I, mean, I got the keys, keys of this dude's fucking kingdom, basically. And so they were totally into me, man. They were like, fuck yeah, you know. We went after it, and then we were probably recording within four weeks of that time, you know. Nobody thought it would be something that big, though. It's just impossible to see, really. It blew up huge, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, gigantic. Huge. 17 million sales worldwide, 33 countries platinum, number one on the planet for 12 weeks. That album was crazy man I was like what the fuck wow tell me about say bring me to life bringing that song to to life <laughs> no yeah, pun well, intended was, at the time we had see what we were striving for we didn't know it was going to be so such a radio thing like all this crap we had an opportunity to put a song in a movie it was daredevil it was just going to be a song in the middle of daredevil so we're stoked about that we worked on that one first and we and i was like oh i got a song in a movie wow i'm freaking out you know jackpot 
And I, you know, I basically just went in and did the same thing I always do, and I looked at it. The bridge that exists now is an A and a B section bridge. It was the A section was on every course. So I told them, this sounds like we're going to the bridge every time we finish the course. I think it's a little offsetting, so let's take that out, go right to the break, and then hit the verses. Then we need to build a better outro, you know. And so they were really receptive. Um, for being as talented as they are, they were probably one of the most receptive bands to my ideas uh, I've ever worked with. And that was a good thing because I was on fire in my arrangements at the time. I, mean, I always have been, but it was just something... You hit those moments was, in life, don't you, where you're right making, there in yeah. the pocket. And I ended up doing it a bunch of times later, but it was like that one obviously was about to change the world. And I could feel it, man, you know, and I, I could, I would sit out in my car at six in the morning and fucking my wife would be at the time be like, you can't be doing this shit. Everybody's going to wake all the neighbors up in Oakwoods. Yeah. I'm like, man, I know, but there's something about it. Like I, if I said, I don't know if anybody will buy it, but I can't wait to play it for my fucking musician friends. They're going to be blown away with this fucking thing, you know? What's that like having that momentum behind you, knowing you're on the cusp of something as as great as that? Well, nothing like. Is it a rush? Is it the ultimate well, thrill? Well, it's nothing like having it go to radio and nobody will play it. That's what happened. Right. Like, okay. They went through like twenty different spaces. Nobody would play it. Well, because it was so unique and different at they the were time. Like, it was out of step. Playing a chick in an orchestra and a fucking piano open like a goth person. No, I think somebody, one person, tried it somewhere in in Denver or somewhere again. You know. And it started to take off, and then the Clear Channel research came back on it as one of the biggest things it ever researched. Then it was on. All of a sudden, uh-oh, this motherfucker's a hit, you know. They had tested radio, and they, they, like, they sent it back to make they like, make something more modern rock about the intro. So we put the... in the entrance of it, in that, you know, to make somebody play, and they still didn't. I, don't, I think it still got denied a lot of places, man. I was bummed out about it. So it didn't. It wasn't just like right out of the box. It was this magic fucking thing. It took. It, somebody had to finally play it, you know. And it, the the public was ready to, to receive it the way I felt it. You know, I was. I felt the fuck out of it. I was like, I mean, good example is this. You have two of the. We we had a party to like to jam the album, at one point, and just hang. No, we had a party. Just I don't know what the fuck we were doing. No, Mad Dog Studios had a party. It was two different. Ty Sullivan and Tony Ferguson came to that party. One guy signed Weezer. Uh, the other guy said, no doubt, for fuck's sake. Two big A&R dudes. We sit them down, because they're at the same party for Mad Dog Studios. <clears throat> me and my manager bring them in there. Play them, bring me to life. Straight out of the box, bring me to life, motherfucker. Todd turns around. Yeah, you know, I don't like the song that much, but I really don't like the singer. And then Tony listened to it. We brought him in there, and he listened to it. And he's like, you know... I just don't feel it. You know, he's like, I just don't get it. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here, man? Like, what the fuck is wrong with these people? Both did not like it, you know. And it's about to be the biggest goddamn thing in the world. You know, yeah. so you can never tell, man. I is that your experience? Is that what you found is that you can never tell what's going to take off? You can, Some people, it's just, it's going to be different. It's just like anything else. It's going to be opposite opinions before it hits. And those people are going to go, oh, well, I was wrong. So who cares? You just have to admit it. I mean, it's just no way. You can't. Success ratios are so small. You can't really fucking know anything. Really. I mean, you can love something to death and think it's going to blow up. But if it, all the things, if people don't fucking respond, then you're fucked. It's the way it goes, man. People have to, the, the public, trying to, to determine what the general public likes is a fucking disaster, man. It's a nightmare. You used to move and target. You will, if they knew, and then we'd all have hit records every single time. Yeah. 
Is that a rush for you, though, trying to figure that out? Or would you just sooner make great art and then just have it be received yeah, in the well, way it deserves I've been lucky, to be received? Man. The, the, thing, some of the ones that I've fought for have been massively important. Snuff for Slipknot was fucking a fight for my life to get that to happen. As a single or just on the album at all? Oh, everything. Done. It, it all. Only Corey was the only one that was really there and believed in it like I believed in it. The rest of the band, so I got them to just play shit on it. I piece it all together and Frankenstein it together. And uh, then I then they, we get past, you know, make Corey cry his face off in the studio when I played it back for him and the, just the rough mix of it. And I told him, I said, fucking dude, I told you this is something special, man. He's like, fuck, I get it. You know, he's freaking out. Then the record company doesn't see it. You know, and then I'm fucking tripping with Monty Connor on an email about because he's trying to use some other stupid B-side off the other studio that was Sean and him recording. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And then they test that song and he comes back and apologizes. Man. Sorry, dude, you saw it. We didn't see it. And then it became three times as successful commercially than anything the band's ever done. You know, and I had to go to war for that one. Mudvayne Happy. I had to go to battle for that fucking song on arrangement. I thought I was going to get fired, man. It was I could not get him to understand what I was trying to fucking do to make a breakdown in the top and to do different outros and all kinds of shit, you know, and then that, those were both massive, man. That was, a, Happy was the number one Epic Records rock song in the history of the company at the time, 16 weeks at number one. And then Snuff was fucking obviously the reason it went platinum in America, you know? So, yeah, I feel like I can hear them now, you know, see if I heard, I've heard some and thought they were going to go bigger than they did was good enough. I thought it'd be a really good ballad for Amy. It didn't go anywhere. Um, there's always a couple second singles and things I thought would have been bigger that didn't, you know. But I've nailed a couple. I mean, I've nailed some that have been that one number one. So crying like a bitch, thousand horsepower from Godsmack. Those two and Amy's bring me to life and my immortal. And then you got like snuff and. Psychosocial. Arguably the two biggest Slipknot songs. Probably ever. You know, I think commercially or, or sales-wise, per capita with what's happening digitally, they are for sure. You know, Was that record you did with them, that was the last album with the original lineup, right? Before Paul passed away, yeah. before Joey left. So, I mean, if you could put us in the eye of the storm, what it was like working with that unique mix of personalities. and Because well, they, the, they split camps on me. You know, I... Maybe it was partly my fault because I, I wasn't feeling the fact that, yeah, these core dudes that wrote the fucking history of the band was, you know, Corey, Paul, and Joey. And they had, Joey and Paul had done the demos like they always do, but yeah, now they have this opposition over here that doesn't want, they want to write too, you know. And I wasn't all about any of that shit, you know, so they got so mad that I didn't really want to entertain that idea. They went and built a, a fucking another studio next door. They were doing all their shit over here. That's originally where they, they put snuff on their board, and that's when I fucking lost it. And I'm like, no, like, Corey, follow me. You're laying this down right now. I'm going to click, and I'm going to develop it tonight. <laughs> Trust me. But that was a disaster. It was a nightmare. The fucking guys, me and the core people that made that band happen in the first place, got along famously. It was great. So you and those three, Joey, yep. Paul, Corey. Me, Joey, me, Joey, Paul, and Corey are the responsible for that band's success on that album, hands down. Jim and John are responsible for complaining a lot and talking about things that they don't even know what the fuck's going on in the first place about. Sean came in to play percussion, never even heard some of the songs. Like, that's how much you respect your band? You don't even know the fucking demo? 
Sid, what a nightmare. He didn't know a single fucking song when he came in to perform. And then he gets on VH1 and says, they ask him, how was it working today for him? He says, well, he didn't really do anything. Well, really? Because you weren't even fucking there, dude. You didn't show up. You showed up one or two days, complained or whatever the fuck they were doing in the other studio, making noises in caves and shit. (laughs) They didn't do shit. Those fucking guys were so disrespectful of them to come out. And you know what? In the end, they actually... Turned it all back around in a Revolver interview because Jim fucked with my career. He came out and said he couldn't wait. Slagged the shit out of me in the press and it stayed on Google forever. I got rid of it eventually. They asked him, well, how was it working with Dave Foreman? And he basically said straight up, um, he made me appreciate Rick Rubin because he couldn't do what Rick could do. Get nine people in a room together on the same page. Well, that's, you know what? It's not my fucking job at this point. I got the demos I need. I got the people that wrote them. I got the fucking rock stars that will make it happen for me. I don't give a fuck if you're friends or not with these people. You, it's your band, okay? You guys are all millionaires now. Figure out how to be friends again. I don't want to be a fucking psychologist with a nine-person fucking monster. I got what I need. I don't need him complaining about it, you know. Or, and then he got really mad because, you know, first of all, they wouldn't come to practice. They wouldn't do shit. So nobody would come out to the fucking studio. So Joey started playing the drums for the songs he wrote, just playing them. And everything was fine. I got them to come listen to the fucking drum tracks that had not been the whole band playing together, like what they accused me of not getting the vibe later. I went and got Sean and Jim individually, made them listen to the drum track and say, is this fine? I mean, is it okay? I mean, they were like, oh yeah, man, keep going, bro. Gave me permission to do it. And then when Jim started playing guitar, one little transition of one of these songs, like he had helped, Joey put him in there to write, you know, help him write a couple of tunes. So one transition didn't go that well. Then all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose because I decide that I'm going to go back and look at some of the things and, and tighten up some things on drums or whatever. Joey didn't care. So then all of a sudden, there's this big fucking thing about how I didn't capture the vibe. They want to redo all the drums. And Joey basically said, go back and tell those motherfuckers that I'm not redoing the drums and I'll take all these songs and I'll walk out the fucking band tomorrow. So I basically went and told them that and they got shut down like little kids. And then they fucking hated me for it. They slagged me in the press. They came out and were total dicks about it. Because you were like the disciplinarian parent. Well, no, the battle was on. Who's going to win the war? We're going to win. We got the album under our fucking... We got it right in the palm of our hands. We have this album that'll crush people. And as it started to grow, they got more and more mad, you know? It was just... it. it the album, the music itself that Jim did not want to use, by the way. He, he called a dinner with me and Corey and him and Sean and, like, the management... About, we're not ready. And Corey spoke up and said, well, I just spent all this time writing these on the lyrics on these demos. And I think they're great. And I, I told him, I said, I think they're fucking fantastic too. So you got a guy trying to eliminate all this shit that just got written. It's going to be about to be the biggest per capita fucking singles that they've ever had. Trying to flush all of it down the toilet based on his own ego. And it was really douchey of him to fucking do that. And uh, I'll give him this. He did come back in the press later and say, you know, it's really wasn't Dave Foreman. It was that they were in a turmoil between themselves. Um, and, you know, yeah, I, I'll give him that. At least he turned around a little bit. But the real, the, you know, the sweet part of that record was to see him all on Jay Leno or see him fucking on Jimmy Kimmel playing Snuff. I was like, that motherfuckers. I told you. To see them all jam into it, you know, the song that they didn't even really know what the fuck they were playing on that I Frankenstein together. Those parts that Jim played were all over the place. They were like, you know, one that, from the endings in the front and all the kind of shit. In moments like that, does the hard work, the struggle, the grief pay off? 
Fuck yeah, it pays yeah. off, man. It yeah. pays my bills still. <laughs> Sometimes you gotta you have to go to extremes to the song's bigger than the band, man. It really is in Sometimes I can see it, and it's got. You have to fight all the way to the death to make it happen. Because I know, I, I can tell. I can't even drive my car or listen to the demo of it when Corey gave me it out of a Garage Band recording, him singing stuff. I couldn't even drive to pre-pro without driving off the road. It was so intense. I was like, "Wow, fuck, this song is amazing, man!" And nobody else was really feeling it. They weren't feeling it. Paul was the first one to speak up and say, "This is the kind of song that could make a band go platinum," and he was right. He's the sweetest guy ever. He was the only guy who called me directly. I mean, me and Corey talked when it went number one. But I called him. He's like, dude, what the fuck is it, Brad? But Paul was actually got, gave me a phone call personally and said, I know it was a lot of hell to go through, man, but it's, it was worth it. So, and he told me, he goes, you did a fucking great job, man. And uh, here we are. We're number one. You know what I mean? So it's all worth it. Then Corey was like, through other avenues, Came back. Well, yeah, I mean, I know he didn't have a fucking problem, but he, he sort of had to go get, he's the leader. You know, he had to, he had to kind of go back and, and side with the other guys a bit because he couldn't just abandon them all the way. He played the he played it pretty good down the middle of the fence. But then it came a time where I heard through the grapevine, he'd said some really great things. He's like, dude, Dave Fortman fucking pulled off a miracle in the in the amidst the turmoil that they were involved in at the time, man. Because look at it. I mean, look at Joey's got kicked out the fucking band, man. Do you think they can still be Slipknot without Paul and Joey? There could be a version of it. Not the songs will never be there because you have the main songwriters gone. Name a Slipknot song that you love from the past. One of those two guys either co-wrote it or wrote it. Period. Every single that's ever duality was written. The musical body of duality was written just like it is in Joey's mom's basement by Joey, and then Corey wrote lyrics over the top of it. Period. All that shit, man. Dead memories. What a beautiful song, Paul. Wrote all that music. That's him. Psychosocial. Joey. All of it. Badass, right? Fuck yeah. There's not going to be that shit ever happening again. You can hear it. I can hear the difference. There'll be some badass moments, you know. Jim is, is a decent writer. I give him that. He's capable. He's also very influenced by Pink Floyd. Which I... Some of those things... That's why I didn't want to interject some of those songs and whatnot. What times I got to keep an eye on this buck clock? Let's see. You got sound check. Yeah, at- sound. 3.35. Do it? Yeah. It? Well, it's 3.35 now. Is it? Yeah. 2.35? 3.35. Oh, we need to wrap it up. Yeah. Okay. Nice one, what dude. Thank you for yeah. your time. No worries, dude. Part we'll have to do a part two sometime because it seems like there's plenty more fucking stories down there. I got a lot of them, yeah. Thank you, Dave. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.